And may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, if you have uh, been joining us on Wednesday nights for our, uh, our discipleship class, we're going through the articles of religion right now, either, either uh, through on Zoom or in person, either way, um, that is available. And last week we talked about article number two, where we discuss um, what we believe about God the Son, what we believe about Jesus himself. And we talked about this past week how in the early church, literally centuries were spent hammering out what we would consider to be basic orthodoxy regarding the person of Christ. That question of who Jesus really is was the center of all the major theological work, all the major heresies as well, of the first eight or so centuries of the church. And we really wanted to hammer down um, some precise ways of, of defining that. What does the scriptures teach us, and how do we explain this in a way that is true uh, throughout the scriptures and not missing some of the point? The Nicene Creed that we recite every Sunday uh, is one of the first and or one of the earliest, really, and most important outcomes of these early discussions. And in the creed, we affirm that our Lord Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, which is all a way of, in some very precise language, saying that our Lord Jesus Christ is, always has been, and always will be God. He is the same being called Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we also affirm in the creed that our Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. In other words, our Lord Jesus was and is truly human. God the Son took on human flesh, uh, gaining that humanity from his mother and became one of us exactly like us with the exception of sin to live, suffer, die, and rise again from the dead for us. He ascended into heaven as a human being and still is a human being, even as he is also God. Now, it's not uncommon for uh, some secular historians or liberal theologians, and we're talking about that, that liberal, they're that theological Uh, category, not necessarily political category. Um, It's not uncommon for these folks to claim that this idea of Jesus being God is something that is invented in the fourth century. We don't really see this until the creed is what they say. And Jesus himself never claimed this. That's what they would say. Well, today's gospel tells us Um, a completely different story. (laughs) It leads us to a different conclusion than what they would say. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew 22, 41. And you can also find this passage in the prayer book on page 215. Matthew 22, 41, page 215 in the prayer book. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So the Pharisees, they're not exactly wrong in their answer. The Christ, the Messiah, is indeed promised in the Old Testament to be David's heir of David's lineage. And in fact, we have several places in the Gospels when Jesus is called the son of David, and he does not reject the title. But though the Pharisees aren't wrong, they're not quite right either. Jesus' response to the Pharisees based on Psalm 110 shows that the Messiah, while certainly David's son, is actually greater than David. And in fact, David calls his heir, my Lord, and prophesies a greater throne next to God's own throne for his heir. The Pharisees certainly recognize Psalm 110 as a messianic text, a scriptural prophecy about the Christ, but they had missed its greater significance. Now, if you remember the post-resurrection incident on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus shows the disciples how all of the Old Testament is ultimately about him. And so with that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Psalm 110, which is one of my favorite passages to uh, talk about Christ from the Old Testament. And actually, we're going to be looking at the the, the translation the prayer book uses. So um, you can certainly turn your Bibles to to Psalm 110, but I'm going to be reading from the prayer book on page 482. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy power out of Zion. Be thou ruler even in the midst among thine enemies. In the day of thy power shall thy people offer themselves willingly with a holy worship. Thy young men come to thee as dew from the womb of the morning. The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord upon thy right hand shall wound even kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with with the dead bodies and smite and sunder the heads over diverse countries. He shall drink of the brook of the way. Therefore shall he lift up his head. So the first thing we should notice in this psalm as a whole is that we have two different uses of the word Lord here. In verses 1, 3, and 4, notice how the entire word is capitalized. We have small caps, but it is still all caps, right? And this tells us that the Hebrew word being translated here is God's divine name, Yahweh, traditionally translated as Lord in English out of respect for its holiness. And that practice was well established by Jesus' way, by Jesus' day as well. So in Aramaic and Greek in Jesus' day, um, they would have used the word for Lord rather than God's own divine name even, even then. And we're just kind of following suit as English speakers. And, and um, incidentally, I didn't notice this until the first service, but our, our King James Bible sometimes does this in the New Testament too which is, and in particularly when quoting from the Old Testament. And that's very interesting because they didn't use that convention of doing capitalizations in, in Greek in the first century. There weren't capital letters that were being used. I mean, you, every, you, the, the manuscripts are all in either lowercase or uppercase. But the translators of the King James, whenever it was coming from an Old Testament passage that used Yahweh, they put the capitals anyway, 
which is pretty neat. I don't think a lot of modern translations do that. Um, just as an aside. So um, I had not noticed that in the King James until first service today. But we do have in Psalm 110 another Lord also, a non-capitalized version of the word in verses 1 and 5. And this tells us that we have a second person involved in the psalm. It's not just God here, but we have a second person as well. Someone who is sitting on the right hand of Yahweh. And as we saw in the gospel passage, this person, David's Lord, is the Messiah. As Jesus pointed out in the gospel, the fact that David calls him my Lord indicates that he's greater than his father David. Now, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews alludes alludes to this same verse no less than five times to make the case that Jesus is also greater than the angels. So in Christ, we have a king who is greater than the greatest of biblical kings. Greater than the biblical version of King Arthur, if you will. And in Christ, we have God's definitive messenger to mankind, who is greater than any of the angelic messengers who rightly caused the Old Testament Testament saints to fall down to their faces in awe. Now in verse 4 of our psalm, God swears to the Messiah that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's the second Old Testament concept uh, we 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 need to look at. This is another concept onto which the Old Testament book of Hebrews also latches. And it quotes this verse about a half a dozen times in, in that epistle to the Hebrews. So we we really need to look at two Old Testament concepts if we're going to see the significance of Melchizedek and his priesthood. So first, there is this division between the priesthood and the kingship in the Old Testament. You have to understand that. Because ever since Moses' day, all the priests come from the tribe of Levi and are direct descendants of Moses' brother Aaron, Through the father's line. It has to be directly through the father's line. So not all Levites could be priests, but only Levites who are descended from Aaron. They're the only ones who could be priests. Anyone else who offers sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple, they could be executed according to the law. No one else is authorized to be a priest in the Old Testament. Kings, on the other hand, are all supposed to be from the tribe of Judah and direct descendants of David, again, through the father's line. So not everybody in Judah could be a king, but only those who can trace their ancestry through David. The Messiah here then is specifically promised in the Old Testament to be David's true blood heir. And if both of these lines have to be going through the father... You can never be a priest and a king at the same time because you can't trace your lines directly back through both of those ways. The math doesn't work. So that's the first thing we need to understand in the Old Testament to get the significance of what's being said in this psalm. Second, we have the character of Melchizedek himself. Now, back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham encounters this man, Melchizedek, who is described in Genesis as um, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So he is a king and a priest. Granted, again, this is before Moses, before David, right? Now, Melchizedek blesses Abraham 
And then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of the spoils of war. And then they share a ritual meal of bread and wine. Don't miss the uh, Eucharistic imagery, by the way, in that ritual meal. Um, we, have, we have these hints at the sacrament all throughout the Old Testament. And this is one of them. So Melchizedek here shows up a mere se- in a mere seven verses in Genesis. And then we never hear from him again until Psalm 110. This one verse in Psalm 110. And after this one verse in Psalm 110, we never hear from him again in the Old Testament. He's never mentioned again until the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews then points out that Melchizedek predates this Levitical priesthood by several generations. And in fact, you could make the argument that as Levi was yet to be born, Abraham being Levi's great-great-grandfather, not great-great, just one great You could make the argument that Levi tithed to Melchizedek also through his ancestor, Abraham. Which shows him, which shows Melchizedek to be a greater priest than the Levitical priests. If Levi is tithing to this priest, he's a better, he's a greater priest. And part of that greatness is that he could be both priest and king. Hebrews also points out that Melchizedek has no genealogy. He doesn't have a father or a mother. He doesn't have a history. He pops into the story. He pops right back out again. And this suggests that he may have been a theophany or an appearance of God in the flesh, a pre-incarnation hint at the incarnation of Christ. That's not definitive, but that's certainly implied in Hebrews. What this does tell us is that the priesthood of our Lord Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. It's one that is joined to his messianic kingship, and it is part and parcel of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, as we confess in the creed and as is discussed in our psalm. According to Hebrews, the priest king sitting at God's right hand after he ascends into heaven tells us that his work is finished. Unlike the sacrifices of the Levitical priests, which had to be offered again and again, sometimes every year, sometimes every month, sometimes every day, sometimes whenever they needed to be done, our Lord's sacrifice on the cross was once for all effective backwards and forwards in time. So now we have in the Messiah a king that is greater than David and a priest greater than Aaron, which is contrary to the pattern we see in all ancient cultures and even a pattern that we see in most of the biblical narrative. The pattern is always that the ancestor is greater than his descendants. That's why Jesus' answer to the Pharisees here is so remarkable. Nevertheless, as David's heir, Jesus still is truly human, truly one of us. And he couldn't be a priest if he wasn't truly human. But also see in verse 3 of the psalm that his people offer themselves willingly with an holy worship. Worship to anyone but God cannot be a holy worship. And that's part of the point that Jesus is driving home in our gospel. When David calls the Messiah my Lord, and when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not merely slipping into old world social structures where some people are nobles and some people are not. 
Um, we're, we're not doing the kind of thing that we see with our bishops in England or in Nigeria where the, you know, the bishop is addressed as my Lord. That's not what we're doing. Rather, Jesus' lordship is unique. It's a lordship that is reserved for God himself. That's why we traditionally bow at Jesus' name in the liturgy. That's why we process with the cross. Now, the saddest thing about our gospel passage is that the Pharisees don't take Jesus' lesson to heart. They knew their Psalms. They knew their whole Bible very well, and their main pastime was to talk about, debate, and argue the fine points of Scripture. They were very much Bible geeks, the Pharisees were. Um, As a priest, I know know what that's like. That's what we do, too. (laughs) And, there, and the Pharisees had been awaiting and expecting the Messiah for many generations. But when he's right there, when he's right in front of them, showing them who he was from the scriptures that they love so much, instead of rejoicing at the fulfillment of scripture, the Pharisees are offended. They knew full well the implication of Jesus' teaching on Psalm 110. They understood that he was claiming to be the Messiah and that he was saying that the Messiah was to be the Son of God. And just a few chapters later, they used this claim to sentence him to death when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. They had hardened their hearts to the gospel because it didn't fit their worldview. It didn't fit their assumptions and their expectations about society, about religion, and about power. They would not have a carpenter's son who isn't going to play their religious and political games being their Lord. So that brings up the question, what about you and I? Are we willing to submit to Jesus' lordship, this unique lordship that demands fealty, loyalty, and allegiance? If Jesus is king, who's greater than all the other kings, that means even other kings need to bow to him. Well, how much more the likes of you and me? If he was rejected by the world, we can expect the same thing. But one day, as the psalm said, his enemies shall be his footstool. And as we confess in the creed, he shall come in glory to judge both the quick and the dead. And as for us, remember that our king is also our priest who prays for us and offers himself as a sacrifice for us so that we would be united to his father. Though his lordship demands allegiance, as outlined from the summary of the law that he quotes earlier in our gospel and the Ten Commandments that we we, we recited today in the liturgy, you'd think that on a day we do the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't get the summary of the law, but this week we did. (laughs) Though his lordship demands that kind of allegiance, he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because it's a yoke and a burden that he shares with us. And in fact, when you're baptized into Christ and come to him by faith, he makes us more than subjects of his kingdom. He also makes us his brethren. We are adopted as sons of his heavenly father, brought into the family and made co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our psalm concludes by saying, therefore shall he lift up his head. Well, when you join him as your Lord, just as David did, just as Abraham did, he lifts up your head also. And when he does, he never lets you go. 
but instead he keeps shaping you into his own likeness and image. And we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.